It is great to be this morning in the great Broward Church. I'm going to start my time because once I get started, that's going to go straight out of my head. And no matter what you've heard about Jamaicans, we know about time. It's great to be a part of Caribbean Sunday. And I've only got one nationality. Don't be distracted by that. I want to say thank you. On behalf of all the churches, in South America, all the churches in the Caribbean, all the churches in Jamaica, thank you for your partnership, your support, your example. This church is a pillar that supports the faith of many. We give thanks to God for you and your work over many years. So I started with a jacket and as I told everybody yesterday at a little meeting we had, I'm a Caribbean boy, and so I, I, I got to come with my insulation because I'm mostly skinny. But I'm already warm. And that tends to happen when I start preaching, so, you know, again, off comes the jacket. This morning, I don't want to talk about Jamaica. I don't want to talk about the Caribbean. The message I have is for all nations. I want to talk this morning about Jesus, the one. What do I mean by the one? Well, if you're old enough to know the movie The Matrix, you know what I mean by the one. In the movie, there are scenes in which the main character, Neo, performs amazing feats. And other characters like Morpheus look on in wonder and they say, he is the one. <laughs> See, the movie is built on the idea of a coming Messiah. The one who is to come will free us from enslavement in a false world so that we can be free to live our lives in the real world. It's the idea of a coming hero who will right all the wrongs that we sense about our world and long to be fixed. Wrongs like sickness, like cancer. Wrongs like death, which separate us from those we love. Today in Kingston, we say goodbye to a dear sister who passed away maybe two weeks ago. And that's been painful for us because we love her. Her name is Suzanne Golson. And no matter how long I've lived, and I, I've, I'm 52 years old, 
I've seen a lot of death, but I just can never get used to it. There is something about it which just is not what God intended for us. Or wrongs like war in the Ukraine or in Israel and what's going on in Gaza. Or violent crime, which is an epidemic in Kingston, Jamaica, and all across Jamaica. And I get the feeling that you have your own problems with guns and crime. Wrongs like poverty. Wrongs like injustice. And what the movie is portraying is something we all long for. A hero who will fix all the things we know deep down are wrong with our world. And so we can relate to yearning for one who's going to come and save us and make our world better. And sometimes it's as simple as longing for the one in a spouse who's going to love us. Don't act like you don't know what that's like. <laughs> or longing for the one, a child that we can love. And sometimes we long for the one in our church leaders. Don't put that pressure on Tony. <laughs> and sometimes we long for the one in politicians. But I'm not going to talk much about that. And this is why the matrix resonates with us. You see, the matrix, in fact, borrows the idea of the one from a much older story. I'm going fast. From a much older story that speaks of our need for a coming deliverer. And one of the threads in the biblical story is of a coming one who is to deliver us and make right all that is wrong with our world. And I want to tell you that story this morning, but in order to do so, we first need to understand how to read the story. So reading the Bible... To see this story of the coming one requires our reading it as a story. And that requires for us to understand what the Bible is, that it really is a unique story. There's no story like it. Because see, the Bible is not like a chapter book, meaning it doesn't just start in chapter one and then run to the end. What it really is, is a composite story written by different people at different times, in different places, and God through his spirit brings it all together to tell one overarching story. It's kind of like a quilt, where you get all these different pieces of cloth, but you knit them together in a way that they make a bigger picture. But in order for the story to hang together, you know what it needs? It needs some common threads. It needs some common patterns, some common colors that make it coherent and not a fashion crime. Well, the Bible requires some common threads to hold all these different parts together. And the stories in the Bible are bound together by common threads. And these common threads are really repeated patterns and words and motifs. And the way this is done is to remind us when we come across these images that one 
image in one story relates to another. The biblical story was written initially for an oral society, people here, and for an oral society. And so the way it works is these repeated patterns and words and motifs would trigger in the hearers, oh, this sounds like that, these two are related, I've got to think about how they work. And so to read the overarching biblical story means that we first have to understand how to connect the story through the threads. Are you with me? So we got to start the story in the beginning. The biblical story begins with chaos. Chaos means disorder. You read Genesis 1, it says that the earth was formless and empty and darkness is over the face of the deep. But our great God, what does he do but he creates order out of chaos by first he separates the waters that are representative of the chaos into waters below and waters above. And then he separates the waters below so that the earth emerges out of it. He's dealing with the formless part. He's giving it form. And then he populates what's empty by putting the celestial bodies in the sky and the birds and the, 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 the sea creatures in the sea and man and, and living creatures on the land. And then he brings light to deal with the darkness. And as God creates, we hear seven times in Genesis 1 that God saw Hebrew word ra'ah, that it was good, Hebrew word tov. And God gives this good word, all of it, to mankind. They don't have to take it. He gives it. And God blesses humankind. This is the heart of God. He wants to bless us. And then he tells them, go be fruitful and multiply. And he makes them in his image because he intends to reign with them over all the earth. But there are these two trees in this special garden that he makes that he can dwell with man. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And what these trees represent, the tree of life represents the fact that God is the source of life. This life that they are enjoying is entirely given to them by God's presence. It only comes from relationship with God and divorce from God, there is nothing but death. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the fact that God and his wisdom is the source of all of this order. There is only order and life when God is in the center. And when man puts himself in the center, then we're back to chaos. You know the story. Mankind rebels. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say you shall not eat any of the trees in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, it's very important for us to identify the threads. Are you with me here? What's going on, first of all, notice that there is a serpent and they are in a garden. And what the serpent is doing is trying to get the woman to rebel against God by deceiving her. And how he deceives her is by making her feel like God is holding out on her. Like there is something good that she can have and that the good God who gives mankind everything is holding back on her. An evil, wicked, abhorrent lie. And he appeals to her desire to be like God. By the way, she's already like God. God made her in his image. And he appeals to her desire to be like God by telling her, you know what you've got to do? You've got to be the one who determines what is good and what is evil. So yes, 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 when God created, God saw it was good, God saw it was good, God saw it was good. But you can't see what is good yourself. I'm breaking out into Jamaica. But you can see what is good yourself. She falls for it, and she puts herself in the center. So when the woman saw Ra'ah, that the tree was good, tov, for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took lakak of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So what happens is she puts herself in the place of God. She says, God says that eating of this tree is bad, but that's what God says. In my own eyes, this is good. And she takes what she wants. Isn't this the temptation that we all feel? Deep down, we all want to be God. We want to decide for ourselves what is good. And we can feel like God is holding out on us. God is holding back what is good. And so we want to take for ourselves what we determine to be good. I don't know about you, but quite often I think that I know better than God. That sounds awful, but it is true. I think that God is holding out on me. You know, one of the big things that I, I, I struggle with at this stage in my life as I'm in my 50s, and as I get older, it's very hard for me to keep up the pace as I used to, and I think to myself, but God, you know for a fact that I want to teach a Bible, but I got to support my family by being an attorney, 
And as I get older, I feel like a person who is schizophrenic or something. I'm splitting two. I can't handle it. You see it. But you're not, I know you have the power to fix this. But you are holding out on me. This sounds really bad. And I, I don't know why I do this, but when I start preaching, I start telling people all kind of personal things about myself that are really embarrassing. And I think that God, I know better. See, we want to be, as we in Jamaica would say, the Don Dada. Translation, the Godfather. Though there really is no expression in English or any language that can capture that Jamaican turn of art phrase, Don Dada. We want to be in the center. It's what Eve does. She pushes God from the center and she puts herself. And then she gives some to her husband. He takes it and they get the great thing they were seeking. They discover they're naked. You ever sin? And when you're done, you feel a lot of things. Guilt, shame, depression. But you know the one thing you always feel? Disappointed. Because it never delivers what it promises. And then chaos. Chaos breaks back into God's good world because what happens is the woman gets separated in her relationship with her husband. There's this order in the relationship with the world and there's this order in the relationship with God and all kind of chaos breaks in. So here's a pattern that we're gonna trace very quickly this morning. Man sees what is good, tov, in his own eyes. They take, lakak, what they desire, or they do what they want against God's will, and that leads to disappointing results and chaos. And one of the signal moments in Genesis is when God says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so what happens is because of what the snake and the woman and the man do, God creates hostility between them. See, Adam and Eve's sin results in hostility first between the woman and the snake. But then God says as well that there is going to be hostility between the offspring or seed, that word is Zerah, of the woman and the offspring, seed, of the snake. Now, that word seed, like in English, can mean one dege dege seed, dege dege. <laughs> one very small seed, like a mustard seed. Or it can be a collective group. So, right here, it's been used in the sense of one collective group, all of the seed of the woman and all of the seed of the snake. Now, the seed of the snake are not baby snakes. They're people like Cain, who like the snake, murder, bring death, and deceive. But that use of the word seed also refers to one particular offspring, singular of the woman and the snake itself, 
Because it says he, he, a person, he alone will strike your head and you will bruise his heel. There's going to be this hostility between the one and the snake. I'm going to pick up the pace. And so the Hebrew Bible gives us from this point on this great anticipation of who is the seed who is to come? Who is the one that's going to make right our world? Is it Noah? Is it Abraham? Is it David? Is it David's descendants? And so we start with Noah. And God has to bring a flood and to recreate the world because man's sin had been so great. And Noah's dad after he'd lived 182 years, said of his son Noah that he'd fathered, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He's hoping he's going to reverse the curse on the land as a result of the sin in Genesis 3. And so God creates a reordered world and he puts Noah and his family in it, kind of like putting Adam and Eve in the garden. Begins on a mountain, he blesses them like he does Adam and Eve. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God is starting over and Noah is sacrificing on a mountaintop. And we think, is he the one? Well, he has a different garden moment than Eve. Noah farms the land and he plants a vineyard, which is a garden. You following me? And he drinks of the wine, which is the fruit of the vineyard. Fruit, fruit, fruit. And he becomes drunk and he lays uncovered. That means he's naked in his tent. And what's going on here is Noah is pleasing himself. He's putting himself at the center. And as a result of putting himself at the center, what happens is that chaos breaks into his world. His son Ham saw Ra'ai's father's nakedness. There's some kind of grievous sin. It divides him from his brothers like Cain and Abel. Noah wakes up and knew what his son had done. Ham's son, Canaan, is cursed. And from Noah comes all the nations of the world that are self-centeredly trying to ascend to the place of God and make a name for themselves. You see that? Noah pleased himself. And as a result of that, chaos is unleashed in his world. We got an Abraham. Is Abraham the seed who is to come? So God takes Abraham after he starts over after Babel and he, he puts Abraham in a new land which is going to be the promised land, a new Eden. And he says, I'm going to give you this land to you and your descendants. That word descendants is the same word, Zerah, seed. And God blesses him like he does Adam and Eve at the beginning and Noah. And he says, I'm going to make your name great. That's what the people at Babel were trying to get a great name. God says, the thing that they want, I'm not holding out. I want to make you great. I want you to be awesome, but I want to do it in a way that is wholesome and good for everybody. And God says, I'm going to make a great nation from you. I'm going to make you fruitful, multiply your offspring just like Adam and Eve, Genesis 1. And God says, I'm going to bless all the nations through your offspring, Zerah. And the idea there is this is not for you. I want to save not just Caribbean people, but all nations. And Abraham builds his altar. He goes on the mountain. Don't have time to talk about the mountain. It's looking great. But surprise, surprise. Abraham has a garden moment. Abraham, he's going down to Egypt, which Genesis 13 tells us is the garden, like the garden of the Lord. And he tells his wife, I want you 
to lie and tell the Egyptians that you are my sister. Why does he do that? He's afraid. And he's protecting himself. And he's putting himself in the center. So he said, wife, I love you. But you know what? Go over there. And I'm going to protect me. Ever done that in your marriage? I love my wife. There are times in my deepest fallen state where she'll do something that displeases me. And I say, oh, adatio ado. Translation. So that's what you're doing. And then I'll say to myself, watch me now. Watch carefully. Whenever I do that, chaos. Because my marriage and any marriage only works when God and not either party is at the center. And what, what, what Abram is doing here, he's being like the snake. He's being a seed of the snake because he's deceiving and he's leading the Egyptians into curse just like the snake did. But the Egyptians, they're like man, the real seed of the snake. They say, well, they saw Ra'ah, Sarah. They see that she's beautiful and they take her, Lakak. And Sarah says, what have you done to me? That's like what God says to Eve. And then he said, take your wife and go. He expels him like the first humans were expelled from the garden. And if that's not bad enough, Sarah decides to get in on the action. Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar or Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You see that? God is holding out on me. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. She's got a problem and she's trying to fix it herself instead of trusting and depending on God. Ever done that? This morning I was driving and the, the, the lady was bringing me to church. She said the most profound thing. She says, you know, when we try to control our lives, that's when they go completely awalk. It's true. And she says, it says, Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, like Adam listened to Eve. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Cana, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Lakak, Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, like Eve gave the fruit to Adam. Adam ate, and Abraham slept. He said, okay. He's thinking about himself. And he went into Hagar, she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, this is like the, then they knew they were naked moment. She looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said, Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is the blame shifting from Genesis. But Abraham said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. He's saying literally, do as you see right in your own eyes. And then she flees, and God's got to find her. Then we get to David. By the way, you see what happens? Let me just draw this, the, the thread, thread for you. She sees what she thinks is right. 
she takes and gives her husband, and all chaos breaks loose. You see that? And next we get to David, and he starts out great. He strikes the head of a giant in an armor of scale who bites the dust. I don't have time to unpack that. Did you get the idea? And so God promises to build an eternal kingdom and a house from David's offspring who's going to build a house for God's name. David secures the promised land through military victory. He prepares to build a temple for Yahweh, sacrificing the mountain like the others. And his son Solomon comes along and he asks God for wisdom. And he actually starts out doing things with the wisdom of God and not his own. He builds a temple, offers sacrifices, and the sons of David are supposed to be the offspring or seed that God is going to make into a kingdom that lasts forever. But surprise, surprise. David has a guard moment. He's on the mountain of the Lord. Ezekiel 28 tells us it's another way to refer to the Garden of Eden. And so it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the house that he saw ra'ah, from the woman, the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. That word in the Hebrew is actually tov. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, Lakak, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she went and told David, I am pregnant. She sent him a text message, three words, I am pregnant. You see the pattern, right? He sees what is good in his own eyes. And he said, man, she married somebody else. He said, I am the king. Me adidondada. I don't need to translate it. Bring her to me. And then he, he takes her, he sleeps with her, and we have that disappointing moment where he gets the message, I'm pregnant. Chaos! Chaos! He's going to kill the woman's husband. You know, his, his, his kids start emulating what he's done. The thing spreads to the point that it's a civil war in all of Israel, and David gets separated from the Ark of the Covenant, like being pushed out of the Garden of Eden. It's the same thing over and over again. Solomon does the same thing. He takes wives that look good in his eyes, turns his heart away from God. All the kings disappoint, and we end with Judah in exile in Babylon. So we get to the New Testament, and we're waiting. And the reason why Matthew and Luke give us these genealogies is they're tracing the fact that Jesus is a son of David, a son of Abraham, and a son of Adam. He is the seed of the woman through all the people that God has promised that he's going to bring deliverance. You still with me? Jesus says of himself that I am the root and the offspring of David. He says... It's said of him by Paul in Galatians 3.16 that Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. And Paul is at pains to point out that he means singular, the one. In Romans and, and, and 1 Corinthians, we're told that Jesus is the second Adam whose obedience reverses the curse of sin and death caused by the first Adam. And he's going to put his last enemy, death, under his feet. You still with me? And we're told in Galatians 4 that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, to redeem. That's just a strange expression, born of woman. That's tying back to seed of the woman. Women don't really, aren't usually referred to as having seed. I think that's pointing to the virgin birth. At Jesus' coming, we're told that that huge dragon, the ancient serpent, the one called the devil and Satan, 
you can't miss it. Huge dragon, ancient servant, one called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, is thrown down to the earth. He's defeating the snake. And Jesus says in Matthew and Mark and Luke, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he goes on to say that I have given you the power to trample on snakes. And Jesus' power over de demons in the Gospels demonstrates his defeat of Satan. And we're told that Jesus came to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. And that he destroyed the devil who has the power of death and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He is the one. But we can be looking for the one elsewhere. When my wife got married to me, she quickly figured out that I was not the one. She figured out, I'm selfish, I'm sinful, I'm not as romantic as she'd like me to be. I could go on. And one thing she had to discover was that the only one, not even our female relationship, the only one who's going to really meet her needs in life is Jesus and Jesus alone. I've got a 21-year-old daughter, her name is Chelsea. She is simply the most beautiful woman in the entire world after my wife. <laughs> and when I held her in my arms as a baby, I could not take my eyes off her. And then one day she turned 13. <laughs> and I discovered she's got sin like me. And I had to learn to love her unconditionally. She's not the one. There is no leader in any church who is the one. I'll take it further. There is no church that is the one. One of the challenges that we have in our fellowship that we love so greatly is that we can be tempted to put our fellowship at the center. And as I grow older, and sometimes there are things I'm disappointed with, it's very easy for me when, you know, let's just say the accountability structures aren't as great to feel like, my time now, I'm going to back off. I will serve as much as I like. And if you come knocking too often, what comes out of my heart, if not out of my mouth, is give me a break. I tell you, I keep talking these things that, you know. You know, one of the things I've got to learn is that when I said Jesus is Lord, I did not say the Kingston Church of Christ is Lord. And then I've got to put and keep Jesus at the center and transcend all the issues with human systems and churches and people. And if I can keep him at the center, then order will be restored in my life. We're told that this Jesus is the one, though he was rejected, in him and in him alone there is no salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He and he alone is the one. And we find Jesus in his garden moment. 
He's in the garden of Gethsemane and Satan is telling him, your father could deliver you and he hasn't. He's holding out on you. You ought to do what is right for yourself. And he must be tempted with protecting himself and putting himself in the center. But what does Jesus do? We're told that going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. The serpent is right. You can do it. Just like Courtney's going to pray 2,000 years from now, you can deliver him from his situation. But you know what? I'm not going to Courtney route. I'm not going the Adam and Eve route. I'm going another route. I'm going to trust you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He puts God in the center and not self. And in doing so, Jesus is showing us that the way back into the Garden of Eden is through the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is showing us that the way back into the Garden of Eden is through the Garden of Gethsemane. And Paul says that was not a Garden of Gethsemane moment. That was how he lived his entire life. And so it says, you know what? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, any participation from the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy. You know what you need to do? You need to imitate Jesus by having the same mind, same love, being in full accord. And here are the key words. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Don't put yourself in the center. Don't think you're God. But in humility, go down. Count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to his own interests, no more of that self-centeredness, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he had what Eve wanted. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't take it. There's no lacak for him. He instead opened his hand and emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. By taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He kept going down to put God on the throne. And that is why he and he alone is like God. That is why he and he alone belongs at the center. And that's why if we put him at the center, not only is God going to exalt him, but as we bow before him and put him at the center of our lives, God is going to restore order, and he's going to dispel the curse. I'm at the end. In Revelation 22, we're told that Jesus restores Eden for us, and that he reverses the curse. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life, it's back, with its 12 kind of fruit, yielding its fruits each month. The leaves were for the heal of the nations. No longer will there be anything a curse. The curse is gone. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. God is in the center. And his servants, that's us, we will worship him. Because he is worthy. They will see his face. There's no more separation between us and him. And his name will be on our foreheads. He owns us. We are like him. We think like him. And night will be no more. There's no longer day and night. Now we've completely got rid of darkness. And there'll be no need of light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. 
and we have what God intended in the beginning, they will reign forever and ever. And what that means is they will live happily ever after. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's available to all of us. If we put Jesus and Jesus alone in the center because he's the one. We sang this morning, lift Jesus higher. I think we sang that. We did sing that, right? I think so. That's what it's about. All I've done this morning, I've tried with my feeble efforts and the talents that God has given me to exalt Jesus. Because he is worthy. And that's why we gather this morning to remember him. And in a moment, he gave us some symbols to remember him by. We shall take of bread and we shall take off the fruit of the vine. And those remind us that he is our salvation. He is the one. And in him, we are returned to God. We're better than Eden. In him, we enjoy again God's good, ordered world. Let's go to God in prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. What an indescribable gift. There are not enough words to honor you and exalt him by what you've done in him and through him and by the power of the Spirit in our lives and the hope that we have in him to be forgiven of all our sins and to be restored to a perfect relationship with you and to live with you in eternity forever and ever. I pray this will be the reality for everyone in this room, including myself, and that we one day will be able to bask in the light of your presence because of your son, Jesus. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.